Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to gather as your people. Uh, we recognize that as your sheep, we need to hear your voice. And so today, dear Lord, would you please in your kindness quiet our soul and speak to us by your word and spirit. Uh, Father, we recognize that uh, our lives can be so filled with distraction and echoes and feedbacks. And so, dear Lord, we ask today that we will be able to pierce through all of that and just hear your voice. We can make these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, church, welcome to another week of our sermon series in the book of Philippians. Uh, last week, Pastor Pete expounded on chapters 2, verses 1 to 11, which is probably one of the most well-known passages of the whole book. Uh, and today, we're going to continue our journey through chapter 2 by looking at verses 12 to 30. And now, as you leave your Bibles open there with me, it should come as very little surprise to you uh, that our verses today build on last week's passage. Uh, if you remember, the heart of our passage last Sunday is actually found in chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. Turn to your Bibles there, um, if you have it with me. Verses 3 to 4, it says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Uh, this here is the imperative, the command. The Apostle Paul here is calling on the Christians in Philippi towards humility, not thinking less of themselves, but to think of themselves less, to think of others more and to serve others to the glory of God. Now, to make this point, you may remember that Paul in verses 5 to 11 uses almost like a hymn-like portion of Scripture to direct our eyes to Jesus Christ, not only as the one who has saved us from sin through his death and resurrection, but Jesus also as our example for humility. Uh, I, I just pray that as you read that passage, your heart begins to sing because it's magnificent. It's God-centered living that is grounded in grace. So as you come to verse 12 onwards with me, which is our passage for today, Paul is actually returning back the point he's trying to make in verses 3 to 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Value others. Look out to the interests of others. But Paul here, if you look very closely, is actually going further to reinforce his point. This is really important to him, right? Clearly, the church is struggling with some sort of relational disunity that Paul really needs to make this point. And Paul here wants to get really practical on how to live with unity and love and humility. And that's going to be so helpful for us today, Grace Point. As we work our way through today's passage, we'll hopefully see that we are called to live out the gospel by looking out for one another. To live out the gospel by looking out for one another. Now, near the end of the sermon, I'm going to tease out exactly what that looks like for us. But let's work our way through the passage, shall we? Come to point one with me as we look at Paul's encouragement. It comes from uh, these verses. Therefore, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. This is the important bit. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Now, if you have your sermon outlines, you'll notice that I've bold and italicized a few key phrases within these verses. These are crucial to Paul's encouragement. The first here is a call for Christians 
to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now, the phrase work out can mean a lot of things and can result in quite a bit of confusion, right? You see, one of the most common definitions of work out is to figure out, to solve, to decipher. Uh, Maybe you're reading a map and you're trying to work out how to get from point A to point B. Maybe you've bought a new Android phone and you're trying to work out how to use it because Androids are so complicated and not user-friendly, right? Maybe you're in high school and you're doing maths and your teacher asks you to not only show your answer but also to show your working out, how you solve the question, almost like they don't trust you, right? Now, hopefully it's clear to you that this is not what verse 12 is trying to say. This is not a call to figure out if you are saved, Uh, Maybe solve this conundrum if you're saved with a bit of fear and trembling as if you're just unsure. No, no, no. Salvation is completely a gift from God. We don't have to figure out if we are saved. We have a deep assurance that comes from God in Jesus Christ. He has initiated salvation. He invites us to trust in him for forgiveness. He will sustain us by the power of the Holy Spirit as we trust and obey in him. We don't have to figure anything out. God's love for you is not conditioned on your performance. You don't have to wake up each morning wondering if you're good enough for God. You are good enough, not on account of your track record, but on account of the perfect righteousness of Christ. So here, church, the call to work out our salvation is actually a call to live out, to put to action the fact that we already saved. It is to work out Put it out, work it out. Now that's so helpful, isn't it? Because this here tangibly reminds us that the gospel is not just something to be believed, but something to be lived. There is no such thing as a private faith because true saving faith always produces tangible fruits. Uh, So what are we supposed to work out with fear and trembling? Well, you know, those two words sound a little bit scary, right? Like fear and trembling. Uh, But you see, fear and trembling is probably best understood as reverence and responsibility. Reverence and responsibility. Recognizing that when you are saved by God, you are called to work out or live out your faith with a deep sense of reverence. Knowing that you are doing all of these things for God as an act of worship. Reverence but also a sense of responsibility, knowing that in all that you do and say, you are an ambassador for God. We bear the mark of Christ in everything that we do. So that whenever someone looks at us, they ought to get a better sense of who it is that we worship. Reverence and responsibility. So what are we to work out or live out? Well, verse 13 tells us to work out what God has worked in you. And what God has worked in us as Christians is scattered all throughout the book of Philippians, right? Remember chapter 1? God has worked in planting the seeds of the gospel in us and causing it to bear fruit. God is working in us a spirit of perseverance and fearlessness in the face of persecution and trial. God is working in us a knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, God has worked in us encouragement, comfort. Participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, oneness in Christ. Chapter 3, God has worked in us joy, contentment, 
perseverance. These are all the things that God has worked in us through Christ by the Spirit. And the call here is to show it. To give evidence that God has indeed done this. To demonstrate that which God has given us by grace. To verify that God has in fact been at work in transforming us. Church, we are called to work out what God has worked in us. Uh, But you see, there's also a purpose, right? The rest of verse 13 says, God desires for us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Or the ESV translation renders this verse as, God works in us to will for his good pleasure. Uh, There is a purpose to our working out. We are working for something, and in context, we know that this good purpose is God's intention that his people should be united in a fellowship of love. United in a fellowship of love. That's God's purpose, right? And this totally makes sense. Of all the verses leading up to this point, and all the verses flowing from this point, right? Everything flowing up to verse 13 is all about the same thing. One of God's primary purposes is that God's children would live in perfect humility, in perfect love, in perfect harmony with each other. God's intention is that grace and generosity would characterize our faith family. Maybe you can think of other passages like Colossians 3 verse 14, 2 Corinthians 13 verse 11, 1 Peter 3, verse 8, right? All of these are passages that speaks of God's purpose for the church. And so we are to work for unity. And Philippians 2 is saying that we work towards that which God is working in us. Does that sound complicated to you? Here's an easier phrase to remember. We are called to live out the gospel by looking out for one another. So if that's the encouragement, then what should it look like, right? Why don't you come to point two with me as we observe the expression, the expression of this encouragement. Uh, Paul here spells out his instruction in a few simple ways. Here's how you live out the gospel. Uh, Verse 14 starts by calling on Christians to do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, we don't usually think much of grumbling or arguing, right? Especially grumbling, we usually chalk grumbling up to someone's personality. Like when someone is asked to do something and they're like, oh, fine, right? We're like, okay, you know, that's just who they are. We'll, we'll take what we can get. We usually kind of put up with it. Oh, but church, the Bible actually takes grumbling really seriously. And the fact that grumbling and arguing are put side by side shows a deep connection between the two. I'm not sure if you've realized, but one of the great sins of the Israelites in the Old Testament is grumbling. It's complaining. It's arguing. This is what leads to their idolatry. Think of their journey through the wilderness. Passages like Exodus 16 verse 7, Numbers 11 verse 1. The people are grumbling and complaining. And this here was not a minor personality defect or a mere character flaw. It reflected a deep distrust of God, a distrust of his plans, his timings, his purposes. Grumbling revealed the state of their hearts. It revealed the hardness, the rebellion, and their pride. 
church, listen very closely. Is it at all possible that our grumbling, even if minor, reflects a greater heart issue? Could our grumbling reflect our pride? That I'm better than you and that your requests are too petty for me, but I'll do it for you begrudgingly anyway because you need me more than I need you. Could that be the source of our grumbling? Could our grumbling reflect a sort of selfishness? That everything around me is just so inconvenient, things are just getting in my way, and why can't everyone just accommodate to my needs and desires anyway? Could our grumbling potentially reflect a lack of the Holy Spirit's work of transformation in our hearts? That though God has worked in us a new spirit of selflessness and love and grace, we instead live out an attitude of grumbling and complaining and irritability. Oh, church, here's a warning from Scripture. Grumbling puts us in really dangerous spiritual territory. And notice this, right? It's grumbling and complaining in all things, right? The verse says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. It's not just a few minor things, it's all things. Oh, grace point. Grumbling and complaining is not just a minor personality defect that needs to be put up with. It's actually a spiritual condition that needs close examination. It's something that we need to repent of to be forgiven of, and to grow in by the grace of God. Given its seriousness, it's no surprise that the verse pairs grumbling and arguing side by side, right? Because that's exactly what the Israelites did in the Old Testament. It goes from a minor grumble like, oh God, things were better back in Egypt, and it ends up with a major argument like, God, why do you even bother trying to save us? Did you know what you were doing? In the context of the church in Philippi, we know that this complaining and argument broke a lot of fellowship and unity within the church. There was contention and an us-against-them mentality. And more than that, it is conceivable, based on other passages like 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 11, that within the life of the church, some grumbling and arguments maybe even led to lawsuits against each other in civil courts. And that's such a tragedy, isn't it? You know, there are times when lawsuits between Christians are unavoidable, right? But there are also times when we, in our sin, allow our pettiness to escalate to a point where our disunity is laid bare for the world to see, as if the gospel of reconciliation has no bearing on the life of the church. Uh, Grace point, grumbles and arguments are a plague within the life of any church. But the Apostle, points, uh, the Apostle Paul's point is this. Church, God has worked the gospel of grace in us. Humility, patience, forbearance are all fruits of God's work in our lives. And so, we are to work out the gospel by doing everything without grumbling or arguing. Church, can I pause and give us a few points to ponder by way of application just on this, right? Have a look at your outlines with me. Here are some questions you can ask yourselves. In what ways are you most prone to grumble and or argue? Number one, within the life of our church. Number two, in your home and family life. Number three, in your vocation or your work. 
uh, in these various aspects of our lives, is there any tendency to grumble when you are asked to help? To grumble when uh, you know you just feel like things are just never good enough for you, and that you deserve better. To grumble about how you think God hasn't treated you fairly. Is there any tendency to argue with people, to cause tension and dissension, to be prickly with your response towards people, and to be really quick to be antagonistic? I'm not asking you to diagnose any of these issues, nor am I inviting you to be defensive, right? You don't have to answer to me. I just want to encourage you to ask, in what ways are you most prone to this? Because we're all in different stages and ages, and what triggers us to grumble and argue is different for everyone. What is it for you? Let's begin by having a greater sense of self-awareness. Because as you come to um, verse 15 with me, point 2b, I want you to know what's at risk here. Paul says that if we heed the words of Scripture, if we do not grumble and do not argue, we will become, or better put, we will show ourselves to be blameless and pure. Now, to be blameless means to be above reproach. To live in such a way that no one can fault us or criticize us for our godliness. And to be pure means to be innocent. Uh, This speaks of a moral dimension, that we are not engaged in any sort of wickedness or evil. Church, to be blameless and pure is God's design for us as Christians, but also as a church. And I hope you see how grumbling and arguing can jeopardize that identity. Grumbling and arguing shows our ugly sides. It often shows our desire to self-justify, to self-defend, to self-vindicate. It does not demonstrate the Christ-like humility that the preceding passages speak of. It violates Christ's call for us to use our strength for others, to give ourselves to others, to sacrifice for others. Do you see? We are called to live out the gospel by looking out for others, so that instead of grumbling, we respond with gladness. But we see needs arise, whether it's in our church or in other spheres of life, rather than thinking, gee, that's not my problem, and I sure hope no one makes it my problem. Maybe we say, hey, look, that looks like a really great opportunity to serve and to help. Instead of arguing, maybe we can learn affirmation before responding. This is especially true in the church, right? And by church, I don't just mean this local church, but as Christians as a whole. Because you see, there will be Christians with whom you don't see eye to eye when it comes to social or political issues. With Christians from different churches, we may even have differences in our theology, even if it's within the bounds of theological orthodoxy. Now you see, godly Christians will have and can have a varied opinion on a variety of things. And I hope you realize that the sort of heated conversations and arguments that push our godliness to the limits has no place in the church and amongst Christians. But there is plenty of room for debates and disagreements in the Christian life. So when we disagree within the life of our church, rather than responding first with anger, we respond first with affirmation. Asking questions like, okay, in in what ways or to what extent can I affirm what this brother and sister is trying to say? In what ways or to what extent can I affirm what they're trying to say? And I emphasize, especially within the life of our church, 
Because if the person you're speaking with is a regenerate Christian, then we must assume that whatever position they hold arises out of a love for Jesus. If they trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, if they desire to honor Him above all else, then we must assume that they are seeking to be faithful to the Word. And it is first by having this posture of affirmation that we are prepared to listen. And it's only by listening that we are prepared to disagree and debate well. Don't you see, church, arguments arise not because we think we are right. They arise often because we're trying to prove someone wrong. And those are two very different postures, right? But what if Christ-like humility and grace penetrates all of our hearts and saturates our faith family? Can you imagine that? Imagine Christians gladly serving each other rather than grumbling. Imagine Christians learning what it means to affirm and to listen and then to disagree and to debate rather than getting into heated arguments right away, showing the fragility of our egos. Our church, these things show us to be blameless and pure. And as the remainder of verse 15 says, living out the gospel allows us to shine like stars in a warped and crooked generation. And that's our desire, right? To shine as witnesses to the gospel. Uh, Church, lean in real close. Let me ask you a question. How do I know that win exists? I can tell you propositionally that it exists, right? Here's how it works scientifically. This is how you should feel when you encounter it. And here are all the benefits of win. I can tell you propositionally. Or... I can point you to a tree dancing under the influence of a wind. I can bring you to the beach and allow you to feel the cool breeze of the wind against your skin. I can place an electric fan in front of you on a hot day and show you how magnificent it is. Church, we live in a world profoundly marked by division and disunity. Typically, our social circles are categorized by, between those who are for us or against us. And this has tragically seeped into the church as well. We are more divisive, more tribal, more antagonistic towards one another than perhaps ever before. How do we speak of reconciliation, harmony, and unity that the, only the gospel brings in the midst of all of these things? We can tell the world propositionally, We can tell the world Christ has borne our sin on the cross to reconcile us to God. We can tell the world that through our reconciliation with God, we as God's grace-saturated children now have a reconciliation with each other. We can tell the world that in the church, we no longer treat each other as enemies. We don't even treat each other as friends. We treat each other as brothers and sisters. This means that in the church, this is a beautiful place of unity in the midst of rich diversity. It's a place where men and women, young and old, have a place. It's a place where people of different cultures and ethnicities and political allegiances and backgrounds can joyfully coexist and partner together in the gospel. We can say this and we should keep preaching this. But according to the Apostle Paul, another great way is to show it. 
As we work out what God has worked in us, we show ourselves to be blameless and pure. We shine like stars as we hold firmly to the word of life. And our hope and prayer is that our life together as God's church would have an attractional value to it. So here, after encouraging and showing us how it ought to be expressed, Paul, in verses 17 to 30, give us three examples of what it looks like. Come to point three with me. Now, as you look at verses 17 to 30, you may know that this is often sometimes taken as an awkward side remark, right? We kind of think that this was addressed to the church in Philippi, so we dismiss its relevance for us, but that should not be the case. No, the entire layout and progression of Philippians 2 is not accidental. Uh, Why don't you turn back to the start of chapter 2 with me? In your Bibles, turn back to the start of chapter 2, and I want you to follow the movement of the passage, right? Because, see, Paul begins in verses 1 to 4, calling them to love one another, look out for one another, In verses 5 to 13, Paul draws our attention to the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus that makes it possible. He shows Christ to be the example. Follow on verses 12 to 16, Paul reinforces the importance, gives very practical applications. Do not grumble or argue. Now, visually, I hope you have your Bibles in front of you. I want you to notice that Paul's train of thought is not yet finished. He only begins a new train of thought in Philippians chapter 3. And so whatever he's saying in verses 17 to 30 must be connected to the main theme of living out the gospel by looking out for each other. And if you read very closely, you'll see that's exactly what Paul has done. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Very hard to pronounce, right? Together they show us what it means to look out for each other. Here are some very concrete and practical examples, right? The first is Paul. We see his example from verses 17 to 18, where he speaks of himself being poured out like a drink offering. This here is a powerful metaphor and an allusion to Paul's impending death. The language of pouring out is a complete giving of self. No holding back. Paul has given his whole life, and now he's about to literally give up his life. He knows he's going to die for his faith very soon. And yet, look at your passages with me. He says he rejoices. He willingly embraces death because he knows it's worth it. The gospel has so transformed Paul that he knows that in Christ, death is no longer his enemy. Heaven is his reward. This frees him to live in such a way that relinquishes his rights and sacrifices it so that others may know and grow in the gospel. So he rejoices. It's all worth it so that the Christians in Philippi can mature in their faith. Church, what a powerful example of someone living out the gospel by looking out for others. Uh, The second example is Timothy. I want you to notice how he is described. Verse 20, Paul says that there is no one else like Timothy. What a compliment, right? No one else like him. Top bloke. And Timothy is so unlike anyone else because of his selflessness. Our passage tells us Timothy shows genuine concern for their welfare. Paul reinforces this in verse 21. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ. But then there's Timothy. 
His concerns are Christ's concerns. And because Christ is concerned for his people, Timothy is concerned for God's people. He is living out by looking out. And the third is Epaphroditus. And in verses 25 to 30, we're told he's like a traveling missionary. Yeah? So he belongs to the church in Philippi, but he goes on behalf of the church to assist Paul in his ministries by way of material and hands-on support. And I want you to notice Epaphroditus' experience, right? He encourages, he supports, he provides aid to Paul so that his work of advancing the gospel can go to different people groups, to go to the nations. Uh, But you see, part of his ministry meant that he also felt so ill that he almost died. Church, these are examples of people who gave not only part of themselves, they gave their whole selves. They mirrored what was taught and exemplified by Christ. And church, Grace Point, listen closely. These here are examples for us. Living out the gospel by looking out for others. So I want to land this really practically for us this morning. Come to the conclusion with me. Because based on our passages for today, I hope we see that one of the ways we can work out our salvation is to look out for each other's spiritual maturity and growth. To look out for each other's spiritual maturity and growth. We take our cue from the Apostle Paul, who poured himself out for the sake of the church's maturity. And we too today are invited to do the same. And that's so helpful, isn't it? Because we can often wonder how we can best look out and serve one another. And church, there are so many ways, and we often jump to the practical first, and the sense in which that impulse is good. Uh, But our passage actually shows us that one of the primary ways we ought to do so is to tend to one another's soul, to help each other grow deeper in our love and walk with Jesus. Now, do you see... This means that coming along to church on Sundays is not just about keeping a perfect attendance, but by being an encouragement to your brothers and sisters. Did you know that your presence here on Sundays prompts conversations that would not have been possible if you were absent? Did you know that? That today, when you talk to someone, that person would not have had the same conversation if you were away. You know, your engagement with the liturgy, with the worship, with the sermons actually inspires people to do the very same. I noticed this, right, as I stand up here. Usually, if there's one person in the row who's engaged, the whole row is engaged. Usually, when there's a row and someone is asleep, not that it happens, right? The whole row goes to sleep, right? I want you to know that you have an infectious effect on the people around you. And then what you say and do is a way to look out for each other's spiritual maturity. You know, your willingness to stick around for morning tea and CG and lunch is exactly the example that younger Christians need in order to go, all right, look, if they can do that, then maybe I can do the same as well. You know, even these simple things are ways to actually look out for each other's spiritual maturity. You know, this also means that some of the best questions you can ask one another in life is, how is your walk with Jesus? How can I be praying for you? What has God been teaching you lately? 
Have you felt like God has been silent in your life recently? What have you been praying about lately? This also means that one of the best ways you can spend time with one another is to read God's word together, to reflect on a Christian book together, to share your struggles and prayer points together, to celebrate answered prayers and to rejoice in each other's joys and victories. It is not enough that your brother and sister in Christ looks put together on the outside. Church, I want you to look at the person sitting next to you on your left and to your right. Look at them right now, right? I want you to realize that you are responsible for each other's spiritual maturity. I want to invite you to recognize as a privilege and start living in such a way where you say, hey, 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 your spiritual maturity is my concern. I really care that you grow deeper in Christ. That's one way to look out for one another. Uh, but you see, our passage also shows us that another way we live out and look out is by showing an interest in each other's welfare. Uh, we take this from Timothy's example. Now, what's very interesting is that the word welfare in verse 20 is very general. It doesn't specify what kind of welfare. It just says that Timothy was concerned for the Christians in Philippi. And, and that's intentionally general. And I think that's very helpful. Because sometimes we can think that the best and only thing we can do for others is in the spiritual realm. It's to read the Bible together, to worship together, to pray together, to journey together, and then that's it. Now, as mentioned, all of those things are super important. But we also know from Scripture that we are more than just our souls, right? We have bodies, minds, hearts that need tending to. Jesus tends to those things. The catechism, the resurrection speaks of a restoration of all things. God cares about our whole self. And so, looking out for each other ought to also be seen in taking an interest in how people around us are going in various aspects of life. You know, this means that asking how you're going is not just a pad greeting, something you say because it's part of social conventions. It means that we are trying to enter into the life of the person that we are speaking to. Right? We, we are not just standing here and waiting for them to tell us. We are trying to step in and enter and empathize and understand what it's like to really be like them. We want to know what's on their hearts. We want to know, we want them to know that they are not alone. And we are willing to give ourselves to love them and to journey with them. And you know, this probably also means that how are you going is not a good enough question. It's hard to answer, right? Like when I'm asked how are you going, I kind of freeze because I actually don't know where to begin. And I'm also not sure if you're really asking or if you're just trying to be polite, right? I wonder if a posture of genuinely looking out for one another necessitates us to come up with better questions to show a real interest in other people's lives. Maybe uh, we can start asking better questions like this. What was a highlight for your week? What have you been finding difficult or stressful recently? What have you been proud and excited about lately? Who have you been worried about as of late and why? 
What have you been praying for during your time with the Lord? Now, now there's more, right? But do you see how each of these questions prompt a particular part of a person's life that how you're going just doesn't quite get to? Asking good and better questions, I'm not sure if you realize, is actually an act of love to direct people's thinking and to direct their answers. I put it another way, right? When somebody asks, how are you going? It's easy to say, yeah, good, thanks, right? Sorry, that's a very terrible accent, right? But you can't say, yeah, good, to all the other questions I've suggested. Yeah? Imagine this, right? Hannah. Sorry, this, you sit in front of me, right? <laughs> what have you been finding difficult or stressful recently? You're not good yourself, yeah? You just can't do that. Asking better questions can be a way to prompt someone and show that you really care. Now, 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 here's the thing, right? When we ask better questions, we need to be prepared for people to say, thanks for asking, I'm not ready to talk about it, yeah? So just because you ask good questions doesn't mean they have to give you an answer. But, but do you see how asking a really good question can show them, you know what, they're not just trying to be polite with me. They actually really want to know. And there will come a time when I am ready to talk about it, and I know who cares enough to ask. You see, maybe you can try that today after church. You might be surprised by the depth of conversations that arise from taking a real interest in other people's welfare. And it's by knowing how others are going that we are actually prepared to love and care for them, don't you see? Live out by looking out. But lastly, we're also invited to look out for our brothers and sisters globally. We take our cue uh, from Epaphroditus, yeah? We see in our passage that he's not only concerned about his own church in Philippi, no, he cares about what Paul is doing in different parts of the world, and so Epaphroditus gets involved. Now, for some of you, this may be the sign you're looking for, to consider going somewhere so that the gospel can be advanced, right? Maybe it's a different part of Sydney that is less rich. Maybe a different part of Australia that has less vibrant churches. But here in Philippians, we notice a global perspective. Paul was traveling to different countries and Epaphroditus was partnering in that. So maybe this here is your missionary call. But in addition to that, I actually want to use this opportunity to stir our concern as a church for our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world. You know, the disadvantage of living in Australia is that we are geographically so removed from the rest of the world, right? But Christians in different continents and countries are just as much part of the body of Christ as we are. Now listen closely, Grace Point, we are not a perfect church, but we are in many ways so blessed with a rich heritage. And the gospel shows us that what we have is never to be hoarded, but to be shared. And as you look at different parts of the world, we notice that many Christians there are struggling even with the basic fundamentals. Uh, you know, this became increasingly obvious to me recently. Um, started this year, I started teaching a seminary course um, for a school in Malaysia online, and I'm going to go in person in April. 
And as we started the course, I'm giving out readings and assignments and all that kind of stuff, right? I love to torture people, so I give them lots of readings, right? And then one day they said to me, hey, we actually don't have access to the books that you assigned. And now here's the thing, right? Our theological students, you know, Jason, Tom, Stephen, Clement, John, Tim, right? All they need to do is head up to the college library, and they have a ton of resources, and they don't even do that, right? No, no, they do, right? Right? They've got a ton of resources. Christ College has 50,000 books in their library. More College has 120,000 books in their library. The sheer volume and scale is unimaginable. And that's to say nothing about the digital archives, right? In contrast, the seminary that I'm teaching at in Malaysia has 2,500 books. Now, now, that sounds like a lot, but that's actually a fraction of what they need to train future pastors who will lead churches. That's just a tiny illustration, right? In different parts of the world, they have large cities with few churches. They have few churches and even fewer leaders and pastors. And that's to say nothing about the huge harvest field that exists in different parts of the world. Church, do we pray about that? Do our hearts break over that? Do we care about that? You know, although this is not meant to be a mission sermon, my prayer is that at the very least, your eyes may be opened and your attitudes may be changed. And perhaps we need to start looking out for our brothers and sisters globally and ask the question, what do they need and how can we help? We don't have much, but what we have, we can give, right? We must not and cannot think that's going on there and that has nothing to do with me. The gospel moves us to a greater global perspective. To give ourselves so that others may grow. To live out the gospel by looking out for one another. And our church, to make things even more practical for us, I actually approached the seminary that I'm teaching at in Malaysia and I asked them, hey, hypothetically, how could we help? Uh, now, I want you to know as a church that we are already helping. Um, the, the elders at Grace Point has freed me up to go and teach. They've given me a week of extra leave to do that. They've even paid for my flights so that when I go, I'm going on behalf of all of us. Yeah. So we're already doing something. I, I thank God for that. But they've also said that one of the best ways to help is to help build their library, to help enhance their access to resources. And so, church, if you feel moved to do so, you might be willing to consider financially giving to help them buy some books so that their students can be better equipped, so that the school can better train pastors for the future. If you like, right, you can come have a chat with me after the service or drop me an email. It doesn't have to be a huge amount, right? Something small will do. And the hope is that together as a church, we can gather a little bit of something and buy books that they need so I can bring it along with me as I head across in a few months from now. Now, of course, looking out for brothers and sisters globally doesn't have to look like this. In your own life, in the life of your family, you might find different expressions, and that's beautiful. I hope and pray that Philippians 2 verses 12 to 30 calls on you to also have a posture of looking out for one another. Looking out for one another's spiritual maturity, looking out for one another's welfare, 
but us looking out for one another globally. Church, today we have so many ways to apply this, and by God's Spirit, we can. Let's pray together. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you that you have a beautiful purpose for your church. And so today, Lord, we ask that you would help us to work out what you've worked in us to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.